Good morning again, and welcome to St. Paul's. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What brought you here this morning? For those of you who are in the building, what made you get up, get dressed, and make your way here to St. Paul's this morning, however that looked, on transit or driving or walking? For those of you watching online, what was it that had you turn on your computer, open up the YouTube link, and press play? Was it habit, curiosity, questions? If you're here in person, was it because you're becoming a new member today or you know somebody who is? Or was it the desire to see friends, maybe eat Omari's excellent cookies? Or because Daphne scheduled you to do something and you had to show up? Or for everybody watching both in person and online, was it something deeper? Was it something that we yearn for, that we maybe can't quite articulate, but know that we need? Why bother going to church instead of sleeping in or going to brunch with your friends or binging your favorite Netflix series? We're at the beginning of a new teaching series on the rhythm of life, a look at five ancient practices or disciplines of the church, worship, prayer and study, service, generosity, and faithful living. Over the next five weeks, we'll look at each of these practices and together, we'll work at building a rhythm of life that will help us sustain our faith and nourish our relationship with God. And we begin here this morning with worship. The practice of worship in our rhythm of life is described on our website as resting weekly from work to join in the public worship of the church. But that doesn't actually define what worship is or why we practice gathering together. So this morning, let's look at these two questions. What is worship, and why do we gather together to do it? First of all, what is worship? The word worship comes from the Old English worth-ship. In worship, we are literally acknowledging God's worth. We're finding ourselves in the presence of God and acknowledging him for who he is, the creator of the universe the one worthy of all praise, glorious beyond all imagining. We're drawing near to proclaim his praise and to speak and learn of his character. But again, what does this mean to draw near to God? The letter to the Hebrews that our passage is from this morning is all about this question. This letter is written by an unknown but educated author to Jewish Christians sometime in the first century. These Christians were grappling with these two questions as well. Why go to church? What is worship and why do we gather to do it? The author of Hebrews in response writes a beautiful letter that doesn't just give a quick answer, but instead a way of understanding the whole history of worship in the light of Jesus Christ. And this answer applies not just for these first century Christians, but also for us in our 21st century context, in our daily rhythms of work, and rest and play. But for us to understand worship in the light of Jesus Christ, we need to go back to what worship looked like before Jesus. So let's take a brief tour of the past. I promise it is fairly brief. And for some of this, this for some people here, this will be review. 
but for some people here, it will be brand new. In the Old Testament, the presence of God was known as a perilous thing. From Adam to Moses to the Israelites, it was known that to be in the glorious, holy, beautiful presence of God as sinful creatures meant certain death. And this was not because God wasn't loving or good. It was because sin could not survive in the holy presence of God. And this wasn't just assumed. This was experienced. There are stories throughout the Old Testament of people whose carelessness in coming into God's presence did mean their death. And so because of the holiness of God, and because of the real risk of death, God set in place an elaborate system of purification that would enable his people, if not to be in his immediate presence, at least to draw close to him without dying. He gave them plans for a tabernacle. You can see it on the screen. It was a tabernacle was a tent that was sort of a portable temple, and this was before the temple was built, in which sacrifices could be made that would temporarily cover the people's sin and allow them to exist in the vicinity of God without dying. Within this tabernacle or tent was a room at the back, and this room was called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies. And it was blocked off from the rest of the tabernacle by a curtain. You can see that in the picture. And in this room was a box called the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe that's familiar to some of you from Indiana Jones. Pay no attention to that. They did not know what they were talking about. In this Ark were kept reminders of God's covenant with Israel, which also were symbols of their sin and the way they had broken that covenant. There were the tablets on which the law, laws were written, the laws that God had given them. Manna, the bread that they had complained about in the wilderness, and a rod of leadership that they had rebelled against. And above the ark, on a seat known as the mercy seat, there were two angels carved with giant wings. And between two, those two angels, between those wings, hovering over the ark, was the holy presence of God. Entering this room with the presence of God meant death to any human, with one exception. Once a year, on a day known as Yom Kippur, the high priest of the nation of Israel could purify himself very vigorously and come into the presence of God to make atonement for the sins of the whole community. But even then, he had to bring with him a cloud of incense. He brought incense in so that the cloud would come between him and the presence of God, and he would be shielded from the full glory of God. He would then sprinkle the blood of an innocent animal on the ark to symbolically cover or hide the sin, uh, in, the sin that was... Um, sorry, the sin that was symbolized by the things in the ark he would hide that from the presence of God and thus make atonement for them. And this was the system for centuries. The presence and the glory of God Almighty with humans in their midst, but hidden from them, behind a curtain, and impossible to approach. And all of this was true until Jesus. Jesus 
the presence of God Almighty clothed in humanity. Jesus, who lived a perfect and sinless life, so could be in the presence of God. Jesus, both human and divine. And Jesus showed us that this whole system of sacrifice had actually been put in place not because it was effective itself. It was just a temporary covering of sin. There was no way that an innocent animal could take away the sins of humanity. But it represented the work that he would do. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice for sin, who didn't just cover up our sins, but took them on himself and died for them. And not just the sins of the Israelite community, but the entire world. He eradicated them completely, making us sinless and pure and holy, able to stand in the presence of this almighty, amazing, glorious God without fear, without death. The Gospels of Matthew and Mark tell us that when Jesus died, the curtain that you saw earlier in the temple, the curtain that shielded humanity from God's presence, tore in two from top to bottom at the moment that Jesus died. Because the way into God's presence had been forever opened to everyone who comes to him through faith in Jesus' sacrifice. Hebrews says, Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary, to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith. What once was only possible with the greatest fear and trembling and with the utmost precautions and safeguards, is now possible everywhere, at any time, because of Jesus. We have the privilege of coming before our loving God just as we are, guilt-free, to delight in his presence, to bask in his love, to seek his life, or his help, and to lay our lives down before him in worship. What an amazing privilege and joy to be able to come into the presence of the creator of the universe at any time, day or night, anywhere, and to know that he loves us and welcomes us with joy into his presence, into the holy of holies, the place we most belong. But if all this is true, if worship and coming into God's presence is possible anywhere, then the second question that I posed at the beginning of the sermon still stands. Why bother going to church? Why would public worship be included as part of the rhythm of life that we are encouraging? If we can just enter God's presence anytime and anywhere and maybe feel closer to him in the woods or on the ocean than we do in church, why come to church? Many people have asked this question. And hear me when I say it is for a very good reason. We need each other. We need each other. For all that I just said, for all that we are able in to enter into God's presence and know that we belong there, it's not easy to live into that truth. 
The journey of sanctification, the journey of learning to love God and love our neighbors is not an easy one. Our world is forever pushing against it, forever pushing against our best intentions. The universe tends toward chaos, and scripture tells us that our natural inclination is to run from God, to hide from him, not to come near him. Jesus himself called this the narrow road and asked us to pick up our crosses and follow him. The path of Christianity is not an easy one. Psychiatrist and author Kurt Thompson says that the work of sanctification will be the hardest work that we will ever do. But he also says, the brain can do a lot of things as long as it doesn't have to be by itself in the process. This is a psychiatrist. He knows what he's talking about. If you've ever had the experience of having a workout buddy, you know the truth of this. I'm part of a workout accountability group. We call ourselves the skinny livers, and livers with a Z, just for fun. And each week, we tell each other on Monday our workout goals for the week. And at the end of the week, we check in and we say, well, how did it go? How did you do? And we've figured out a really good system of reward and uh, that makes it feel worthwhile. Without this group, I have the hardest time forcing myself to get up and do anything good for me. But with it, it all feels so much more possible and so much more enjoyable. And the Christian journey is the same. It's meant to be done in community, with the encouragement and help of each other. The letter to the Hebrews uses some striking words in our passage to describe this. Let us consider how to provoke each other to love and good deeds. And the word provoke can be used, as in English, it can be used in both a positive sense and in a negative sense of irritating, of kind of poking. And this is done intentionally. Sometimes having my workout group ask if I've met my goals is irritating. It's not something I want to hear, like, oh, not quite, I'm getting there. But it's the same in the church body. It isn't always comfortable to have somebody asking you things like, how's your Bible reading going? Or how are you doing with your rhythm of life? Have you been able to find a connect group? How's it going with that relationship with that difficult neighbor? How are you doing in your relationship with your mother and that forgiveness that you've been struggling with. These are ways that we can help each other learn to love. Proverbs 27:17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. It's a striking image. Early church father John Chrysostom calls this the sharpening of love. These ways we provoke each other to love and to good deeds. But it's not just intended to be kind of provoking, but encouraging. We can encourage each other. We can help each other. I'm struggling with prayer. Can you pray for me? I'm struggling with parenting. Can you help me? Do you have any tips? Can we do a Bible reading plan together? I just can't get up to read my Bible. All of these are ways that we can encourage each other in this walk of faith on this narrow road. In January, we'll be holding Rhythm of Life workshops to help each other build these healthy rhythms together. And I encourage you to take part in them. As everyone who comes through the door of a place of worship, 
whether it be a house in a back street or a great cathedral in a public square, is a real encouragement to everyone else who is there. Your presence here on a Sunday morning is an encouragement to those around you, as well as a way of strengthening and encouraging your own faith. For those of you who are becoming new members today and showing your commitment to this rhythm of life, you are an encouragement to everyone here today, and I hope you find encouragement yourself from each of us. So as we seek to grow closer to Jesus, as we seek to build rhythms of life that will strengthen us for his service and help us to grow in love, let's not neglect meeting together. Let's approach this throne of grace with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, in full assurance that we are forgiven, that we can be safe coming into the presence of God, knowing we belong here, in this most holy place, in the presence of God, in the company of those on your left and on your right, with those around the world and down through time, and with all the saints who have gone before us, and most of all, with Jesus, our great high priest, whom we worship and adore. Thanks be to God. Amen.